Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Project Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institute and researcher of Japanese war heritage. This week we are joined by Nick Kapoor, Associate Professor of History at Rutgers University, to discuss failed revolutions, drawing comparisons between the 1960 Anpo protests of Japan over US-Japan relations with the Capitol Hill riots we saw at the start of this year. Although more than 60 years apart and in totally different contexts, Nick argues that there are several factors worthy of comparison, such as the role of polarizing heads of state, the nationwide shock response to televised political violence, and how the media, state, and people respond to these movements which never met their goals. We hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon, Nick. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So, first of all, we'd like to know a little more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? Yeah, so I am a... Uh, expert on modern Japan, which usually we, when we say modern Japan, that covers 1868 to now, so Meiji Restoration to the present. Yeah, how did I get interested in Japan? Um, well, uh, after undergrad, I was planning to get a PhD in United States history, but I was a little bit sick of school, so I wanted to go to some other place in the world, and I applied a bunch of jobs and internships, and I wound up in Japan teaching English. So while I was there, I got more interested in Japan. And when I came back for my PhD in U.S. history, I gradually drifted into U.S.-Japan relations and ultimately just into Japanese history. Uh, and so that's how I got into this field. Great. So our case study for this episode will be the 1960 U.S.-Japan Security Treaty Uprising, or AMPA Uprising for short, around uh, maintaining U.S. military bases in Japan following the end of its post-war stewardship of the country. These were some of the most violent protests seen in Japan, with hundreds of thousands of protesters descending upon the National Parliament Building, the Diet in Tokyo, daily at its peak. At its climax on the 15th of June 1960, protesters stormed the Diet compound and clashed with police, resulting in the death of a Tokyo University student. As this is the focus of your recent book, Japan at the Crossroads, Conflict and Compromise After Ampo, could you provide the context for this, explaining the enormous public reaction, whether or not violence was inevitable, and what it achieved ultimately? Yeah, so the way I frame this in my book, Japan at the Crossroads, is I actually see these huge protests in Japan in 1960, uh, which as you allude to, were the largest protests in Japan's modern history, for sure, and, and maybe all of Japanese history. I frame them as the sort of culmination of a long series of conflicts between the left and the right in Japan, beginning with the end of World War II and the US occupation and across the 1950s. I think there's a tendency to think of the 1960s as this era of global protest. And so there's these huge protests in Japan in the year 1960. And oftentimes people look forward and they say, this is part of the 60s and protests. Uh, but I really see them, if you have to choose, I mean, they are also connected to later protests in the 1960s. But if you have to choose, I, I see them as sort of the end point of this long process of very bitter contentious and, and sometimes violent um, clashes between left and right in Japan. And so what were these 
two forces fighting over. Uh, and as I talk about in my book, I think they're really battling over the future of direction of Japan after defeat in World War II. And I trace this actually back to the U.S. occupation, the military occupation right after the war. And the sort of dual nature of that occupation. So the United States originally in the early years of the occupation, they purge all the wartime leaders. They get rid of the Zybots or these industrial conglomerates. They have a land reform. They reform education and the police. Uh, they decriminalize labor unions and the communist party. Uh, and so this is the first phase of the occupation, which is empowering the left. It's a kind of liberal phase. And I think the impetus there was to punish Japan for having dared to attack the United States and also to democratize Japan and make it so that Japan would not engage in warfare again. And of course, the, the crowning part of this effort to prevent Japan from making war in the future was Article 9 of the Constitution, which explicitly forbids Japan from maintaining war-making potential or engaging in warfare. But then you have the second half of the U.S. occupation, which is very famous in Japanese history. It's called the reverse course, when the United States suddenly realizes the Cold War is starting. Uh, you have the, the fall of the Iron Curtain over Eastern Europe, and then the fall of China to the communists in 1949. And so the United States starts to think, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't be weakening Japan and empowering the left. Maybe we should be strengthening Japan's economy, maybe even have Japan remilitarize, and we need to start empowering the right. So they depurge all of these rightist leaders. Uh, they crack down on the labor unions. Uh, they allow um, the police to be re-centralized more along pre-war lines. And so they undo a lot of the reforms that they did, and they start training um, Japanese police into what they hope will become a military, which still hasn't quite happened, although we have these so-called self-defense forces in Japan, which are a de facto military. And so both sides, the left and the right, are given some tools and some reason to believe that they are the future of Japan. People on the left maybe wanted, you know, this is labor unions, leftist political parties, student activists. Maybe they think Japan might eventually become socialist and and even have a, a socialist revolution. And people on the right want to return Japan to aspects of the pre-war system. And so over the course of the 1950s, you have a long series of um, protests against U.S. military bases, against remilitarization, against nuclear testing, um, and the the right brings in the police uh, to crack down on these protests. You also have intense labor strife, um, very violent um, strikes and strike breakings in the 50s that sort of escalate over time and culminate uh, in the largest strike in Japanese history in 1960 as these Ampo protests are going on. And so you have these left-wing protesters who have sort of been practicing throughout the 50s and growing and uh, gaining momentum and learning how to organize larger and larger protest movements, ultimately on a national scale. And then you have the right, which is expanding the police force, and they're also sort of building up their capacity to oppose protests. And, and in 1960, we actually see a lot of right-wing counter-protests, which bring together Yakuza gangsters and various right-wing groups that have been growing as well. And so you have this titanic sort of final battle in 1960 for the future of Japan is, is how I see it. Is Japan going to maybe 
head in a socialist direction and side with the communist bloc, perhaps, or is it going to head in a more right-wing direction and become more conservative and, and go back towards maybe the pre-war system? And then you have these huge protests and counter-protests and crackdown and the strike at the Mikai coal mine in Kyushu, which is also harshly repressed. And in the end, I think neither side wins. Uh, ultimately, you get a more centrist vision of Japan. But the specific issue, just for people who don't know about the Ampo protests, is a revision of the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty, which is the treaty which still allows the United States to maintain military forces on Japanese soil to this day. And this had been forced on Japan in 1952 as a condition of ending this military occupation. You have to allow U.S. troops to remain in Japan. And that was a very one-sided treaty. And so they were trying to revise it to make it better. But of course, people on the left and a lot of centrists, and even by the end, you have right-wing groups protesting against the treaty on sort of nationalist grounds. They don't want any treaty. They don't want any U.S. troops on Japanese soil. And so even a revised treaty that they're trying to pass in 1960 is no good. And so they want to get rid of that and have um, no treaty whatsoever. And so you have this huge protest movement uh, ultimately, that it fails to stop the treaty, and the treaty is passed, and it's still with us to this day. Uh, but the very conservative prime minister, Kishi Nobusuke, was forced to resign in disgrace because the protests got so large and violent and out of hand. And a planned visit to Japan by the U.S. president, Dwight D. Eisenhower, uh, which would have been the first visit to Japan ever by a sitting U.S. president, um, they had to cancel that because of the protests were too violent and they were afraid they couldn't guarantee his safety. So on one hand, they didn't stop the treaty, but on the other hand, they did bring down the conservative government uh, and they they canceled this visit by President Eisenhower. So that's some of the context to this protest movement in 1960. Yeah, so I just wonder, would it be, I mean, it probably is, but would it be a bit too overgeneralizing to say that the left was represented the disenfranchised people, whereas it sounds like the right is very much entrenched in these governments, in, uh, in the police, and in political groups. So what would you say about that? Uh, you mean today or after these protests? At the time, at the time of the protests, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it was unclear, I think, uh, which way the government was going to go. I think nowadays, that's why I asked that question today or back then, because nowadays we have this sense that the right has become totally entrenched and the conservative liberal democratic party has ruled Japan for most of the 60 years since 1960. And we, we do think that the media and the police and the courts are, are on the conservative side. But I think it's important to sort of recapture that moment in 1960 when many future Japan still seemed possible. So because the U.S. occupation, as I mentioned, had given some support to both sides because of the dual nature of the U.S. occupation, it, it was still unclear in 1960. That's my argument, uh, which way Japan is going to head. You had some actual socialist party governments in the late 40s, right? And then with the reverse course, the U.S. was trying to help the conservatives gained power. And now we know the CIA was backing the Liberal Democratic Party in the 1950s. Uh, so the U.S. was trying to cement the conservatives into power. But in the late 1950s, the Japan Socialist Party, which was the main leftist opposition party, was gaining momentum. So they were winning more and more seats in the diet in every election. 
and people were saying, you know, maybe they're going to take power soon. And so they seem to be gaining momentum. Now, my book is, is a lot about the aftermath of these protests and how these protests themselves reshaped the political landscape in Japan and actually heavily damaged the left and helped cement the conservatives in power. But, you know, just reading newspapers and magazines and these, these sort of pundits prognosticating on the eve of these protests in the late 50s, people at the time certainly felt very unsure which direction Japan was going to go in. And maybe in retrospect, we can say it was perhaps already heading in a conservative direction, but uh, I think at the time it was kind of unclear. Yeah, so this level of social unrest and violence tends to clash with the modern-day image held by many of Japan as a nation of social cohesion and uniformity. Other examples of violent political activism in Japan, such as the Japanese Red Army, have also been consigned to the history books. Is this representative of the failure of these movements to achieve what they set out to do, or is this something you believe to have been actively politically repressed? Yeah, so this is an outstanding question, and this actually gets to the very heart of what got me into this particular topic and and research project in the first place. So, you know, before I started this book, I had actually been to Japan and had lived there for a while. And, uh, you know, I remember when I was an undergrad reading about these huge, massive Ampo protests in 1960. And, you know, I was just shocked because it it didn't match with my own personal experience of Japan. And today, um, you know, Okinawa still has lots of protests against bases and stuff, but at least on the mainland of Japan, if you walk the streets of Tokyo today, you know, there's a few protests and maybe it's going to get bigger in the future. But it's really hard to imagine even now this sort of extremely contentious, violent protest uh, in the Japan of today. And like you say, there's this image of Japan, which probably as a young man I had bought into, it's this harmonious society and it's a consensus society and everyone works together and rows in the same direction. So when I read about these huge protests, and they weren't that long ago, I mean, 1960 is well within living memory of a lot of people. I wanted to understand, you know, how is that possible how, in, in this country that has now promoted this image of itself as so peaceful and cohesive? And also, how did we get from there to here, you know, where it's so hard to imagine that? So that's how I embarked on this project. And I, what I found is, uh, yeah, I mean, Japan has hardly ever been a very peaceful and cohesive place. I mean, if you look even earlier in Japanese history, it's just an endless train of peasant protests and uprisings. And and even in the 20th century, in the pre-war era, there's all these popular riots in the Taisho period. And so you do have wartime when a lot of that is, is actually, you know, violently suppressed and they throw lots of people in jail. But then in the post-war, it all reemerges again, as I was mentioning in the 50s, is very violent protests and strikes. So you have the bloody May Day in 1952, where the police gunned down a bunch of protesters uh, in front of the Imperial Palace. Um, you have a number of other violent protests in the 50s. And so, yeah, I think th- there isn't necessarily anything inherent in Japanese culture that makes it peaceful and harmonious. But what I argue in my book, actually, is that in reaction to these huge protests in 1960, when people are just shocked and horrified at how out of hand things got, and they want to prevent this from happening in the future, there is a kind of effort to 
promote a narrative that Japan is a harmonious consensus society and that we always have been and to sort of actively try to forget um, a lot of the violent protests and dissent um, throughout Japanese history and promote this image of this peaceful nation as a part of nationalistic project to reconstruct Japanese national identity after defeat in World War II. We, we no longer have a military or an empire. So what does it mean to be Japanese? And so you have all kinds of writings about um, the uniqueness of the Japanese race or Nihonjin Ron is what it's called, you know, theories of the, of the Japanese race and why the Japanese people and culture are special and unique. And, and as part of this, there's a promotion of this narrative that it's a very harmonious society. But there's also actual repression that goes into that, um, as your question alluded to, that in, in some cases maybe people want to dissent, but the avenues for doing so are closed off. Yeah, it's interesting to think that that uh, harmonious image could have come, been a direct result of, of the riots, definitely. So let's turn to the Capitol Hill riots, uh, half a century apart in separate nations with extremely different motives and contexts. On the face of it, it seems difficult to draw comparisons between these two events. However, in a recent article for Critical Asian Studies, you point to such factors as the politically polarizing figures of Donald Trump and then Prime Minister Kishi, as well as the culminating act of invading the national parliament. What can we learn from these similarities, and how helpful is it to compare riots from 1960 with one from 2021? Great. Yeah, this is another good question. Uh, so, this short piece I wrote for Critical Asian Studies really actually came out of my own personal annoyance <laughs> that a lot of people, especially in Japan, a lot of commentators were sort of very glibly tossing off this comparison. Oh, this is just like uh, the 1960 protests in Japan. So actually, part of the reason I wanted to write that piece was to deconstruct that comparison and point out a lot of the huge differences, what I see as very crucial differences, that it's not so simple to make that comparison. But as part of that, you know, I understand why this is an easy comparison to make, because in both cases, like you say, you have people actually crashing into the national legislature where laws are made. You have these very polarizing leaders. Kishi, the prime minister at the time, he had been a member of Tojo Hideki's wartime cabinet. Uh, he was very involved in, in the making of World War II in Asia. And he had actually been imprisoned as a war criminal after the war by the US occupation, but was then depurged and rehabilitated as part of this reverse course that I mentioned in order to fight communism. And then with US aid and the backing of the CIA, he was catapulted back into the premiership. Uh, but as you can imagine, he was an extremely polarizing figure at the time, and a lot of people hated him. And so actually forcing him to resign was a huge victory for the protest movement. And then, of course, we, we know about Donald Trump. So there are these really important similarities. But I also want to just highlight that in a lot of ways, these are very, very different uh, movements, uh, especially ideologically. So in the U.S., in the, the Capitol insurrection on January 6th, you had right-wingers, white supremacists, this QAnon conspiracy theory, evangelicals, uh, a, a coalition of right-wing groups and conservative groups 
that we're trying to subvert democracy and uh, overturn a legitimate election based on a variety of lies that they had been told. Whereas in 1960, these protesters saw themselves as protecting Japanese democracy from Kishi. And so whereas Donald Trump was actually supporting these protesters and in some ways urging them on, these protests in Japan were opposing the polarizing conservative figure that was in power at the time. And Kishi himself, uh, to pass this security treaty, he, he didn't have enough votes to cut off debate in the diet. So he had his opponents dragged out of the diet by police and then cut off debate and rammed the treaty through with only members of his own party present, which was pretty extreme measure and was seen by a lot of people in Japan. Even conservative commentators were outraged that this was a, an attack on Japan's post-war democracy. And so the protesters saw themselves as protecting democracy, um, this broader protest movement. And they also did not necessarily support crashing into the national diet. Uh, the broader movement, which was very large, millions of people, actually opposed crashing into the diet. And it was really these radical left-wing students who smashed their way in. But they actually, as far as I've been able to tell, had no intention of going into the national diet itself. So whereas the anti-Trump protesters battered down the doors and went into Congress and, you know, talked at least about hunting down uh, Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi and, and other um, <laughs> lawmakers and maybe even killing them. Uh, these student protesters, although the broader movement opposed their actions, they never actually wanted to smash into the legislature itself. They wanted to enter the kind of um, open space in front of the national legislature, which they felt belonged to the people, and they wanted to um, do their protest marches in that space. Uh, and sort of reclaim the diet for the people after Kishi's assault on democracy. And the police didn't want to allow them into that area. And so they smashed their way in and battled with police. But at least what they saw themselves as doing is trying to protest Kishi's actions and this treaty and this US-Japan alliance and American imperialism um, from a left-wing perspective. And they certainly, never claimed that they were trying to kill anyone or or hurt anyone in that sense. So I think that's a big difference. Uh, and then, you know, just ideologically, they're sort of the opposite. They're on the left wing and they impose imperialism and fascism. They, they saw Kishi as trying to return Japan to pre-war fascism. And they did want a kind of revolution, but it, it would have been a socialist revolution rather than some kind of conservative counter-revolution to uh, you know, keep a, a leader in power who had been voted out. Yeah, I think it's really important to look at the differing ideologies of the protesters at the Capitol Hill and then those in Ampol protests. Because I think that you know, when you have with Ampol, you have about you have hundreds of thousands of people coming together, a national issue where you know many people are involved, a large part of the population are involved in it as opposed to in the Capitol Hill, where you have these kind of fringe right-wing extremists. I mean, I know there were comments that there were also some more moderate Republicans amongst the numbers, but it's hard to say that the Capitol riots were representative of the nation's sentiments in the way that AMPO was. Would that be correct to say? Yeah, I think that's right. But I, I wouldn't push that difference quite so far as the, some of the other differences, just because I do feel... Trump has millions of supporters and certainly millions of people who voted for him. And, you know, they're 
broad similarities in the size of the backing. And also, I, as I mentioned, the broader AMPO protest movement did not actually want to crash and die, and they tried to stop the students from doing it. So we see a similarity there in that you have this broader movement. It's not the whole country, but it's certainly millions of people. And uh, that broader movement supports a cause, but maybe doesn't necessarily support the most extreme manifestation of that, which is smashing your way into the national legislature. So there are still some similarities there. But I think for me, it's that the ideology is, is totally different. And also sort of the intention of, of whether you're going to try to um, kill people <laughs> or not. And then also taking their own rhetoric seriously. Are they trying to protect democracy or in some way uh, overthrow it? Yeah. A key point of comparison you draw upon is that both of these events were a failed revolution, where a revolution seemed to be occurring, but in the end, no revolution happened. The lasting impact you point to is that while the revolution failed, society was nonetheless greatly transformed. What change does a failed revolution make? And in particular, what change do you think we can expect coming from the Capitol Hill riot? Yeah, so this is a great question again. And, and this is where I do see some value in drawing these kinds of comparisons. Um, so the the exact nature of these movements is, is quite different as we've just discussed. But I do see a similarity in sort of the shock value of what happened, the symbol of the nation, you know, the national legislature being invaded and the violence that happened. Uh, you know, five or six people have already died as a result of the capital invasion. Uh, and in, in the case of Japan in 1960, uh, only one person was killed, a female Tokyo University student named Kamamichiko, which was extremely shocking because she was a Tokyo University student, which is the best university in Japan. So one of the best and the brightest, but especially because she's a woman um, at a time when women were not normally expected to be involved in protest marches, although that was changing. But also, this is often forgotten when we talk about the 1960 protests in Japan, but thousands of people were injured in this clash and, and, and quite badly injured because uh, the police were beating people with batons. And so students were, were beaten unconscious. There was blood everywhere. This was all on TV. And so people saw this blood. Uh, and so in that sense, although only one person died, uh, it appeared much more violent on TV. We didn't see as much of the bloodshed in the case of the United States Capitol invasion. So the shock at seeing this and the televised nature of it, sort of televised in real time in both cases, uh, around the nation, right into people's living rooms, I feel there's a similarity there in, in the effect that it can have on society. And so my whole book is actually about the impact of the AMPO protests later on in the 60s in Japan, and the sort of longer consequences. I see some similarities there already with what's happening in the US and especially you have this, like I said, a kind of failed revolution and, and you, you mentioned this in your question. I think we often focus in as historians on successful revolutions. They're very important. We can see a huge movement and then something big happened and, and there was a regime change or something. Uh, but I think these near revolutions where people at the time felt like this is a revolutionary moment or the people involved thought they were taking part in a revolution and then you have this violent clash, but maybe they don't quite succeed. I think those are quite consequential as well, maybe in a slightly different way. But you can think of similar cases 
you know, the, the Arab Spring. These are some recent cases of Tiananmen Square in China, the Green Revolution in Iran. And these have consequences even when they don't quite succeed. And that's certainly the case in, with the AMPO protests. And what you see in a lot of these is some combination of conservative crackdown or they, they want to prevent this from happening along with some concessions, right? So you have to try to calm down the waters. But I think most of all, you see a sort of mass of centrist people, people maybe who aren't even political very much at all or don't pay attention to politics normally or are just politically kind of in the middle and they're just shocked and outraged and they they can't accept this and they don't want this to happen anymore. And they're willing to sort of accept all kinds of changes to make sure that this kind of thing won't keep happening. And so we see that in the United States, you know, businesses don't like this kind of thing going on. And so we saw a lot of donations pulled, but we see a lot of tarring with the same brush, both sides, uh, all violence is bad. And so people want to drag other left-wing protests um, from earlier on uh, Black Lives Matter and sort of say, this is all part of the same trend. And a lot of people in the media doing some soul searching and saying, what can we do to, to avoid this from happening again? And so I see a lot of parallels between those types of things and what happens in Japan after 1960. So people really want to make sure this kind of thing can't happen again. The media changes its coverage to try to prevent protests from rising in the future. There's a crackdown on on certain types of, of speech in Japan after 1960, which we also see deplatforming of people on YouTube or Twitter or social media. And there's a, a, a kind of rise of a, at least a strong pressure for a consensus politics. And I think that makes certain types of more radical reform efforts more difficult when you have a lot of uh, ordinary Japanese or ordinary Americans saying, we just don't want this type of uh, political conflict, this extreme polarization to continue. And so it'll be interesting to see how far these parallels can continue um, and whether the Japanese case will really be that similar to what happens in the United States going forward. But I think we can see some early signs of some similarities. Yeah, I know that historians make poor profits but um do you think that one of the main changes that might come from the capitol hill riots is an end to the kind of populism that saw trump into the white house well i think in some senses the cat is out of the bag in that regard in that at <laughs> least some of these uh, more extreme uh conservative politicians are going to still see trump as a model and that that type of populism as a model. Now we'll see how well that can be repeated because in many ways, Trump really has built a cult of personality, which is intimately tied up with his own image, um, which is pretty unique. And, and I think would be hard for other politicians to emulate. And would they really just be able to so simply inherit his base um, just by following some of his policies when in fact his followers may be less interested in the actual pol specific policies and more interested in the whole aura of Trump and his own outsized personality, regardless of what his policies actually were. But I think we're going to continue to see efforts to copy Trump's model of, of seizing power and, and winning over voters. I also think 
looking at the Japanese case, although I, I just talked about sort of centrist pressure to get rid of political violence, I don't think we're going to see the end of extremism in America either.、Uh, in Japan, you know, these, a lot of these left wing students became more and more violent over the course of the 60s. And you already mentioned the Japan Red Army. I mean, by the early 70s, the, the last few most extreme student groups were engaging in sort of international terrorist incidents. And then we also see right wing violence after the 1960 protests.、Uh, a lot of right wing groups had been. Panicked by these huge protests, and they thought this is a sign that Japan's on the verge of a communist revolution. And if we don't take action now, we're going to lose our cherished Japanese culture and traditions. And so there's a wave of assassinations and assassination attempts in the early 1960s, which are part of the response to these protests. So, yeah, as historians, we don't want to predict the future, but I, I you know, the Japan case suggests. These extremists aren't going to go away, but maybe they're going to be more and more marginalized. And so, this gets back to your question you just asked. But I think it is going to be harder for conservatives and the Republican Party in particular to quite so easily just stand back and let these forces、uh, continue. And actually, we just saw in the news today Mitch McConnell calling out a Congresswoman Marjorie Greene. For some of her extreme positions. And so I think that's reflective of after this kind of event happens, some things have fundamentally changed in a political landscape. And you can't just so easily say, well, you know, people have their opinions, or yeah, these people are crazy, but they're, they're harmless. They're clearly not harmless anymore. And so going forward, Americans are always going to have to take these extremist elements a bit more seriously. And so I think they're going to be. Pushed even further to the margins, which is going to radicalize some of them even more and make them try even more extreme things, I think. But it's also going to make it less appealing for people to so easily join these movements. And so, it, if we look at the Japan case, that suggests it's going to reduce their numbers. They might become more extreme and more desperate as their numbers shrink, but hopefully, they will become also less important and less powerful in society. Yeah, I guess the、uh, broader impacts are going to be revealed in the years to come. Thank you for answering my questions throughout this episode, Nick.、Um, before we, we wrap up the episode, could you share with us what projects you're currently working on? Oh, sure. Yeah. So、uh, I'm currently researching a new book project, which will be about discourses and ideas and narratives about suicide and self sacrifice in modern Japan from the Meiji period up to the present.、Uh, and really, what I'm interested in is this. Kind of belief, sort of similar to what we were talking about earlier about the belief that Japan is a harmonious consensus society, but a belief that somehow Japanese culture and Japanese society leads to a lot of Japanese people committing suicide and that somehow they commit suicide more often than other people. And I think this belief is widely held even today、um, around the world, not just outside of Japan, but also by Japanese people themselves. And I see that as a somewhat new phenomenon. I think if you go to pre war eras, you can find、uh, Japanese leaders who are proud to say that Japanese people don't commit as much suicide as Britain or France or something like that. And I think it's also easy to disprove that even today, Japanese suicide numbers are not especially high when you compare to similar types of societies. And so I want to historicize that and、uh, relate this. 
to Japan's modern history, how in the drive to become a modern nation state and to militarize and overcome the threat of Western imperialism and convince Japanese farmers to join the military and die for the nation over time, these narratives about self-sacrifice have led to, in the post-war period, uh, a kind of belief that Japanese people are especially or even uniquely prone to committing suicide compared to other people around the world, which, as I mentioned, I think empirically is not true, but it's a widespread belief. So that's my big project. You know, I'm also writing some articles along the way. One that I think is interesting and related to this Ampo book is the rise of people in Japan in the 60s and 70s up to the present saying they're not political, they have no politics, um, but still forming protest movements and explicitly centering the apolitical nature of their movement, even though when we look at these protest movements, they seem pretty political, but they, they say, no, we're not political at all. And how that continues to shape protest culture in Japan today and how that's related to these protests in the 60s, uh, a kind of reaction to that is uh, an aversion to naked partisanship or political ideology. And so maybe it becomes a more successful strategy to achieve changes with your protest movements to declare that you have no politics, even when in fact you do. So that's a, that's a smaller article that I'm working on. Great. Well, I know I'll be looking forward to all that and I'm sure our listeners will too. Thank you for joining us, Nick. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. You can find a link to Nick's research profile in the description below. Next week, we'll be joined by Dana Mersalis, PhD candidate at Harvard University, to take a look at Shinto in modern Japan. Together, we will explore the ways Shinto shapes and is engaged with by contemporary Japanese, as well as the shifting roles of women within the priesthood. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.